Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 203. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and joining me today is the better-looking co-host of The Beauty Brains, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. (laughs) Hi, Perry. Hey, you know, Valerie, on today's episode, we're going to be answering some beauty questions about the quality of ingredients versus the price of the product. Whether the curly girl uh, method uh, really requires you to avoid parabens and why it does. What it's like to work in the cosmetic industry and how you get started. And whether you have to wait to apply vitamin C in your skincare products. But first, Valerie, it was so good to see you last week. We were both in New York. It was great to see you too. We only get to see each other a couple times a year and I always look forward to those occasions. Yeah, it was a good time. It had some nice weather there. It was a good show. Actually, my favorite part was getting to do the Insta story. Um, I I don't know how many people saw that Insta story. Really, if you did, it's a treat because no one else is going to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on now. So for those of you guys who missed out, Perry and I were in together in New York City last week for this National Society of Cosmetic Chemists annual scientific meeting. So this meeting... Uh, has dozens of speakers coming from all over the world to speak about the latest research in cosmetic science and thousands of cosmetic chemists, well, maybe like thousand plus, descend upon Manhattan uh, to listen to all of these talks. And it's really great because you have science, of course you have fun, there's a couple parties going on. Uh, And then I got to see Perry and we recorded our first ever Instagram live together, but Perry's first Instagram live ever. Yeah, and, I didn't. I didn't even know what it was. You know, <laughs> but but it was very cool. And like yeah. a bozo, I forgot to save it after we were done recording. So I'm really sorry about that. But I'll learn moving forward. Uh, yeah, you know, it's technology. Uh, you know, that isn't the first episode of the Beauty Bruins that didn't get captured. Remember, uh, I think we recorded one in March, which didn't get captured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was awful. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I think I was in Germany when that happened. Yeah, well, you know, it's it was te- all for nothing. It's technology. It's not for nothing. We learn something now for the next time, right? Yeah. So what was your favorite part about the show? Well, I, like I said, I very much enjoyed doing the Instagram story with you. But as far as the show goes, um, it, yeah, there was some really cool stuff. Uh, I particularly li- liked uh Tim Caulfield's talk, his keynote speech was uh, just really great, and, and it covered a lot. It's like preaching to the choir, though, covering a lot of things about skepticism and some of the crazy things that celebrities plug, and uh, it really went well. I also like some of the some of the talks. There was, well, I was, it was a mixed bag. There was that whole section on CBD where there were some. Mm-hmm interesting science presented which i just kept thinking oh well that's a drug claim that's a drug claim you can't do it in cosmetics and then finally there was a a lawyer who essentially got up there and said exactly that and she was really spunky and feisty and and i thought she was a good speaker yeah i'd like her to represent me in a court of law yeah i uh so for those of you guys who don't know uh, i was the chair of the committee that picked all the speakers to speak at the event this year so i had a little insight to the program that we put together. It's my last year on the committee. I had a great time. I represented hair and the hair color faction. So of course I enjoyed the talk. 
on hair that we had, but uh, one of my favorite talks, aside from the spunky lawyer in CBD, was a gentleman named Lex uh, Pelger from CV Sciences. Uh, he actually was really good uh, speaking about uh, just studies that have been done about CBD and skin being the lar- largest organ on the body and um, any toxicity studies. To me, it was interesting. People really preach about the benefits of CBD, but everything has a dose uh, where it can be not good for you. So uh, some of the work he's done has explored that. So it was pretty interesting. One of the things I found interesting about the CBD research is that that research is being done on animals. And it'll be Mm -hmm. interesting to see how brands that claim, you know, cruelty free can sort of square that circle because, you know, there's animal testing being done on it. Yeah, well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds for sure. Or even how CBD legally gets uh, incorporated into products. So we'll we'll be seeing it, right? Yeah. All right, shall we move on to our beauty science news? What did you see in the news this week? I saw this fascinating story. Uh, It was some research that was published in the October issue of the Journal of Applied Microbiology. Um, It's an interesting story, which should really be a wake-up call to consumers or anyone who are using products that say no preservatives or preservatives free. It turns out that even products that don't contain water have been found to be contaminated with potentially harmful microbes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. These researchers, they wanted to investigate the nature and the extent of microbial contamination in products that had been on the market for a while. They looked in five different categories of used cosmetic products, including lipstick, lip gloss, eyeliners, mascara, and beauty blenders. And they did this because they wanted to highlight the potential risk that's posed to consumers. And this was done in the UK, although the same kind of results you might expect in the US. So what happened is that they got samples of used products that was donated by consumers, and they analyzed them for the microbial contents. Now this was done by taking a sample and then plating them on some sort of microbial culture plates and then letting them grow and and then looking to see what they got. Surprisingly, they found that anywhere from seventy. Really surprisingly. (laughs) Well, that's that's a good point. Uh, What they did find was that well, the the number actually surprised me to tell you the truth. They found that you know seventy nine to ninety percent of all the used products were contaminated with bacteria, and they had bacteria loads ranging from one hundred and two to one hundred and three cfu per milliliter. That's uh, cultures for, what is that, CFU? Colony forming units. There you go, colony forming units. You know, Perry, if I were a cosmetic chemist, I would have gone back to school for microbiology. I I love Uh, it. It's great. It it is fascinating to see those cells. Do you have a favorite uh, microbe? I don't, but I I find them all fascinating, especially uh, how how they grow, how they, what they metabolize. It's really interesting. And I find the smell of agar, the broth that they grow in really comforting. I've always been, I miss it from grad school. I miss it. I've always been a big fan of the paramecium. Oh, you know, I used, I used to tell people that my full name was paramecium. I just go by (laughs) Perry for short. That's awful. (laughs) So anyway, they found that, uh, 
bacteria loads range from 102 to 103 CFUs per milliliter. Beauty blenders contain an average load of over 106 CFU per milliliter. Yeah, you don't want to see what my beauty blender looks like. Yuck. <laughs> Yikes. They also found Scary. the presence of Staphylococcus. They found E. coli. They found Citrobacter uh, frundi. Frundi. Are they my friends? We. Oh, wait, wait. That was German, wasn't it? Anyway, they, they also <laughs> yeah. found fungi that was detected in all product types, and they were prevalent in beauty blenders, um, um, about 58 to 59% uh, respectively. Now, 93% of beauty blenders had not been cleaned and 64% had been dropped on the floor and people continued to use them. What are people doing with these beauty blenders? I, I'm not going to lie, Perry. Beauty blenders are ugly and they get ugly pretty quick and they roll around on your countertop yeah, has my beauty blender rolled off onto the floor and I've just picked it up and given it a qu- quick rinse? I'm not going <laughs> like, to lie. It's the, what <laughs> it the, has. So you're saying the five-second <laughs> rule for food applies to beauty blenders? Yeah, you try uh, not to think about it. but um, Well, these it, researchers They can be pretty gross, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they concluded Yikes. that significant levels of microbial contamination occurred during the use of cosmetic products, and the presence of pathogenic organisms pose a potential risk to human health. Now, I suppose most of these products probably passed microbial challenge tests before they were put on the market, right? Especially in the UK. I mean, the UK requires you to um, have a whole dossier of safety information approved by some responsible person. So I don't think the manufacturers are putting out products that are contaminated. But, it, the, you know, the manufacturers probably have this mistaken notion that if their products don't contain water, they don't really have to put a preservative in them. But as we see from this study, that's not true. And I advise consumers to avoid any product that is saying that they're preservative-free or paraben-free because microbes, even in anhydrous or water-free systems, can uh, exist and can grow and can represent a danger. Now, even products that have preservatives uh, are do do pose a risk, but it's less of a risk. So, bottom line for me is you should only use cosmetics that have preservatives. It's just the more safer option, as this study demonstrates. Yeah, cosmetics are required to be sterile when you manufacture them. There's a, a threshold of bacteria, yeast, or mold that you're allowed to have present. I think it's less than 100 colony-forming units. So, of course, um, as you use a product and you, you let it interact with your beauty blender or your eyelashes, you're introducing, or even just opening it into the ambient air, you're introducing more organisms to it, and you need uh, your product to have preservation, even if there's not water to fight that. So yeah, I, I completely agree. You should only use cosmetics that have preservatives and clearly uh, clean and sanitize your beauty blender once in a while. I might do that tonight. <laughs> well, after all of this talk. <laughs> Yikes. Right. So, so what story did you see this time? Well, I was uh, looking at New Beauty and I saw an article that said, survey says, our eyelids are itchier than ever. And of course, I've had itchy eyelids. I don't know about you. Have you had them before? Well, I have them now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm like scratching my eye. Uh, So, you know, I I peeked in on it. And according to research published in the January issue of JAMA uh, Dermatology, Americans are typing in the keyword itch to the tune of more than 18 million with the skin on the eye or eyelids appearing at the top of the list with 3 million hits. So I took that right out of the New Beauty article. Uh, I couldn't find the actual JAMA publication that this was referencing. uh, So I don't know what January issue it was, or maybe I just, I just don't know how to search, but I did my own, um, Google search. Google actually has a trends feature. If you go to trends.google.com, you can type in any, uh, search word and see how popular it has been in the last, I love, uh, since I love, I love Google yeah. trends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. You can see how many times it's been searched since 2004, when it's peaked, when it's dropped. Uh, so I looked and it, it seems pretty flat, so I, I don't know how uh, anyone picked this up. And it does seem to cycle up and down a little bit, uh, especially on the time of year. So anyway, I guess people are searching uh, for eyelids. I just I just don't feel like it was an increase or alarming based on hmm. uh, Google Trends data. Maybe these people are using Bing. I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you know anyone who uses Bing as a search engine? I don't. I do use DuckDuckGo, though. Oh, okay. Because DuckDuckGo right, Duck, right. Duck, Duck, is like Google, but... They don't track you, and so uh, privacy issues are better. Yeah. yeah All right. Well, thanks for the but, tip. But nobody uses Bing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, what I thought was interesting, I mean, yeah, itchy eyelids. I, I'd like to know how to solve them because nothing is worse when it does itch, and you're like, how do I get it? This skin area is so fragile. They interviewed two dermatologists where one dermatologist advocated one should avoid touching the eyelids if they're irritated, and that they the person with the itchy eyelid should apply Aquaphor sparingly. I find a lot of dermatologists recommend Aquaphor. My own one does. Um, it's great. So uh, she also said if the itching gets too bad, you can get a prescription topical available to ease the itch. Now there was another dermatologist and he didn't really say that. He just said like, you should buy a product he has on the market, which contains <laughs> 1% hydrocortisone. Convenient, right? That's shocking. Yes. Buy my product. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so he said his product contains 1% hydrocortisone and no irritating ingredients that all of the other OTC hydrocortisones contain, like alcohol and petrolatum. Wait, petrolatum isn't irritating? I know, right? So <laughs> I, I was irritated on a couple levels. Yeah. Like, one, that's great you have your own product line. and I, I just, I don't think you should plug it, or I don't think they should be interviewing someone who has an agenda to promote their product line. I don't know. That just kind of bothered me. Like I don't promote the products I work with. That doesn't mean I don't like them. I just, I'm like, right, you know, I keep, I keep it separate. So anyway. When, um, when, when uh, someone who is selling a product is talking about a product, you, you can't really have faith in an unbiased opinion, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then the other comment he made exactly like, Clearly, he doesn't have an understanding of skincare ingredients. Like maybe he's an excellent dermatologist and he has this 1% hydrocortisone cream, but he clearly does not understand that um, petrolatum is not irritating. Which I find mind-boggling. How does a dermatologist not know that? Yeah, I mean, petrolatum is actually recommended and approved by the FDA as a skin protectant. It's monographed. You can use it. It's fantastic. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure why he made that recommendation. And then furthermore, most creams don't actually contain alcohol, like isopropyl alcohol. So 
when he said these other OTC hydrocortisone creams contain alcohol, I was like, what is this dermatologist talking about? Because you wouldn't necessarily add isopropyl alcohol to a cream. Um, Uh, And I even actually... That would be ridiculous to do that, yeah. I went to two drugstores and actually looked at all of the products and couldn't find isopropyl alcohol. I did see fatty alcohols, like acetyl alcohol. Right. uh, And those are not quote unquote, drying alcohols or irritating. Uh, they're based on, um, fatty acid chains from plants, um, maybe historically animals, uh, that actually help structure a cream to make it thicker and give it some rheology and they're not drying and irritating. So it's just a different chemistry, you know, I mean, the the only common is they have an OH group. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I wasn't sure what he was talking about there. Now, sometimes you can read the back of a conditioner and you can find the word isopropyl alcohol in it. Just as an aside, in case someone says, that's not true. I have a cream that has isopropyl alcohol on the ingredient listing. Uh, You can find um, IPA on an ingredient listing in hair conditioners, and that is because a conditioning agent, behentramonium chloride, typically has isopropyl alcohol listed in its ingredient listing Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a solvent in the manufacturing process and it's just part of the ingredient listing. But no chemist is actually like, hey, let me add IPA to this formula. Right, right. In a cream that's like weird, so. It's just classic uh, fear-mongering marketing and it's disappointing to see it coming from a dermatologist who really should know better. Yeah, well, I've said it before, there actually really is a a pretty big gap between dermatologists and our industry. It would be be really great to to close that gap and empower dermatologists with the knowledge that we have. I I know we do have some dermatologists that listen, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Well, there's some in the industry, too. One of the problems, though, is dermatologists, they spend their time treating diseases and things like that and like saving people's lives you know preventing cancer working on skin cancer and things do Mm -hmm. you really want them to now spend their time you know coming up with cosmetic products when you have a whole slew of cosmetic chemists that already do this they should know about the ingredients that go on people's skin and know that petrolatum is not irritating but i can understand if they don't have that knowledge Yep. I also do want to give the dermatologist who was interviewed the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes when you're doing interviews like this, things can get lost in translation over the phone. Absolutely. Or you're answering interviews by email and things can get taken out of context. I I have interviews sometimes where I'm like, that's not really what I said. Uh, But whatever, it's published. So maybe we'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. To that point, uh, I recall I did an episode of... uh, the Dr. Oz show once, and you know it's always it's always fun to go on TV. But then I I usually don't watch any of my appearances. It's just embarrassing to watch that. Mm-hmm. But this one time I watch it, and they made me say something that I don't recall saying. I mean, maybe I did say it, but <laughs> and they I, like spliced it together. I, I just think and then it you're was, like parabens are bad. I, I just what? think it was the way that they edited it. Uh, I think they like. I said something, and then maybe I said another thing, and then they just cut that piece out and jumped. And I'm like, I, I don't think I really said that. So, <laughs> this is why I do not watch my TV appearances anymore. Yikes. Are we ready for some questions? Let's do it. We got an audio question here. Let me call up the tape. 
Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Charlotte from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your podcast. I've learned a ton and really enjoy listening to it. My question is this. My esthetician insists that products that have similar ingredients but radically different price points is due to the quality of the ingredients. So for example, the Ordinary's hyaluronic acid, which will cost, what, $6, compared to like an Is Clinical hyaluronic acid product, which will cost you $80, that that is due to the quality of the ingredient that each of those companies is pulling from. Is that true? Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that question, Charlotte. Um, no, it's not true. <laughs> so let's let's talk, talk to you about why. Now, when you're a formulator and you need to create a product, the first thing you have to do is find a supplier for the raw materials that you want to use. Now, with the exception of some of the few giant companies like Procter & Gamble or Henkel, um, who make some of their own ingredients, most cosmetic manufacturers rely on raw material suppliers to get their ingredients. There are actually some small cosmetic makers who will make a few of their own ingredients, although I don't think that's a particularly safe practice. You know, I get contacted by people who say, I went in my garden and I took some time and smashed it up and now I want to put it in my cosmetics. Is that okay to do? You know, I don't, I don't think that kind of thing is safe to do. Uh, but most, most, the vast majority of any product that you're going to get is made with some raw material that came from a chemical raw material supplier. Hyaluronic acid, which is the ingredient you asked about, it's not an ingredient that a small manufacturer or some random indie beauty brand is going to make on their own. They're going to buy that from a raw material supplier. Exactly. So as a, as a chemist, when you have a project and you're like, oh, I, I want to use these ingredients, you... You have suppliers that you just know sell stuff to you, but then there's also a couple online databases that we use to actually like look up some of the ingredients. You have to work in the industry to be able to access them. And so you're like, oh, I need hyaluronic acid. Let me go to this website and look in the database and see who supplies it. So in a way, like we kind of have access to all the same stuff. Yeah, every chemist has access to the same stuff. Now, industry chemists have more access than, you know, your average Etsy beauty maker. Uh, but if even if you're curious, just as a consumer, and you want to see the ingredient suppliers, you can go to a website like uh, nodi.com, K-N-O-W-D-E.com, and you can just look up ingredients. So look the back of your label, uh, your cosmetic product label, take an ingredient and you can look it up and you can see who the suppliers are for that ingredient. Now I looked up hyaluronic acid and it turns out there are about 13 suppliers for hyaluronic acid. But none of these companies have what you would call a clinical strength versus a cosmetic strength version of it. There isn't something that a formulator working on a clinical brand could even buy that a formulator say at like the ordinary couldn't get. Now, in reality, a raw material manufacturer can't even make hyaluronic acid that works better than their competitors or in some consumer perceptible way. Now, there might be some sort of price differences between hyaluronic acid suppliers. So, in fact, some smaller companies are going to buy ingredients uh, at a place like Alibaba, where that's produced in China and they can get a lower rate. But to me, that's a bit scary since the quality control of ingredients uh, like that 
are a bit questionable in my mind. But bigger brands like The Ordinary, they're not sourcing ingredients from Alibaba. You know, it's actually more likely that those smaller clinical brands are sourcing from there. But as far as good sources for raw materials go, the price is not really related to the quality of the raw material. Um, it's related to, the price is mostly related to how much it costs to make. That's, that's one thing. But more importantly, how much are you as a company going to buy? Uh, it's mm -hmm. all about the volume. So bigger companies can buy the same exact ingredient for a much lower price uh, just because they buy, buy a lot. You know, I used to, when I worked on the VO5 brand, VO5 uses a lot of sodium lauryl sulfate. And we could get sodium lauryl sulfate for like 25 cents a pound. Wow. Yeah, to give you an, give you an idea, most, most companies are probably going to spend over a dollar a pound for sodium lauryl sulfate because they just didn't buy that much. But we bought a huge amount so we could get a low price. In cosmetics, for the vast majority of cases, the reason that there is a cost difference is in the product, how much you buy the product for. The reason is marketing. It's marketing, marketing, marketing. Now, there's also some distribution reasons for, for cost differences, uh, but those affect every brand. Unless you are buying the least expensive products, formula cost really has almost no impact on how much you're going to charge for the product. In fact, when I was formulating, the brand that I was on already had a retail price for the product. So that price was chosen to fit that brand. And it wasn't chosen based on how much it costs to make the product. It was said, I worked on VO5. VO5 is a 99 cent shampoo brand. And that, it, you know, some of our formulas cost, I don't know, 15 cents a bottle to make. Some cost 10 cents a bottle to make. They all cost 99 cents. To the consumer, yeah. Yeah. So the bottom line is for most ingredients, you you really can't, first, you can't make a superior version as you might have suggested in your question. And second, the price of the product is almost completely due to marketing reason. It really doesn't have a lot to do with the formula costs, at least in my experience. Of course, you know, I wouldn't say your esthetician is necessarily lying to you. He or she probably doesn't, she probably really believes what they're telling you. And and I'm sure the salespeople from the brands who supply that product are telling them what they already know. Uh, but the basic thing is that it's not true. Your esthetician is mistaken and the price difference of uh, clinical strength brands is not due to the quality of the ingredients. Well said. Well, our next question is from Helen. She asks, Hi, Beauty Brains. I've started to follow the Curly Girl method, and while I'm not sure if all the claims are well-founded, I will say that it has sorted my itchy, flaky scalp out, so I'll stick with it either way. Oh, all right. Cool. Yeah, that's good. You know, that's one I of the things, as, as an aside, that's one of the things is just because something doesn't have, like, a lot of scientific support behind it, if it's working for you, it works for you, so keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. She also says, I know that we are to avoid silicones that can't be washed out with SLS and we shouldn't use drying alcohols and SLS, but I've never heard what hair benefit avoiding parabens is meant to bring. Are they just on the we hate parabens train? What is the claim here and is the claim correct? So we've actually talked about the curly goal method a couple times, uh, more specifically on episode 177. So we won't go into depth on what we said in that episode, but uh, the curly girl method is not necessarily 
scientifically based. I mean, I mean, it's not science based, uh, but it really is more experiential based, anecdotally based on uh, people's experience with different products um, and hair routines and creating this method for people with curly hair. Uh, but to date, there is no scientific evidence that says the curly girl leads to superior results on hair. If it's working for you, that's great. If it didn't work for you, that's also great. Yeah. You, <laughs> so. you shouldn't feel bad because there's no scientific reason to yeah. think that it will work. Yeah. Hair, hair is so complex and it it's is. unique to you and For everyone sure. needs different stuff. Yeah. So, but to more directly answer your question, yes, the advice given in the curly girl method to avoid parabens has no scientific merit in terms of how it impacts the hair. It really is just part of the parabens aren't good for you rant. Uh, parabens in our experience and in looking at the evidence, we haven't seen any measurable impact on hair for good or for worse. Parabens are meant to preserve a product and they don't have um, any function on the hair. So people who have said you can't use parabens in the curly gold method or other iterations of it are simply just misinformed about parabens and like, a few other things. Yeah. Like, I mean, you wouldn't, it, whether there's a paraben in your formula or not, it would have exactly no impact on what you will notice about your hair. Yeah, it's there. There is no hair performance, and that I actually uh, do know from my experience developing products with a salon in a lab. But just as a side note, too, uh, one thing that you mentioned in your question that uh, you should avoid silicones that can't be washed out with SLS. Uh, I do just want to say also that you don't need SLS to wash out silicones. Firstly, uh, silicone is a broad class of molecules, and right. many of them do wash out with SLS and many other surfactants. Or some and, of them, like cyclomethicone, just evaporate off, so they don't stay right. stick around your hair. Exactly, yeah. And so you can pretty much use any shampoo, and you'll get those silicones out. So anyway, Helen, uh, sleep tight. Rest assured that if you have a product and you really enjoy it and it is paraben preserved, you can sleep even better knowing that your product is safe from microbial contamination and there's no detrimental impact on your hair. Yeah. I love parabens. <laughs> I, I'm not afraid to say it. I think that might be my new change my view. <laughs> wait, that we, we did that one already. We already did it. Yeah. Right. My view has not changed. Yeah. View has not changed. Are we ready same. to move to question three? Yeah. Question three comes from Sierra. She says, I'm 28 and considering going back to school to study chemistry and enter the cosmetic chemistry field. Yay. This would be my second uh, BS, uh, the first being in textiles and apparel. I was hoping I could ask you a few questions and get an idea what the industry is like. In your experience, is a master's needed or will a bachelor in biochemistry or general chemistry be enough to secure a job? What are the daily tasks of a cosmetic chemist like? And is it extremely competitive place with a company or is there a lot of opportunity? Any advice you can provide will be greatly appreciated and looking forward to the next show. All right, this is a good question. You know, it's interesting. How did you end up getting in the cosmetic industry, Valerie? Well, I was in grad school. I was miserable. I did not have a supportive uh, professor in my program. What and were you thought, studying you know, in grad school? I was studying biochemistry. Oh, okay. 
hey, I studied yeah. biochemistry too. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I, I really did like the work, but it just wasn't a, a good experience. And I, I was like, I'm done with school. So I dropped out and I taught high school science for a year in West Virginia. You don't need a teaching certificate in underserved areas. Uh, so I, I taught at a private school that couldn't find a science teacher. And I had a great time uh, doing that. And then winter came. And I was like, I <laughs> oh, winter cannot handle any more snow. It was a terrible winter. And oh, so I, I, I flew to San Francisco to interview um, at some biotech companies. San Francisco is also cold. Unbeknownst to me, I'd never been out to California before. And I thought, I'm not going to move here, but I don't know if I'll ever be in California again. Let me fly down to L.A. And boy, I tell you, the energy here in L.A. was fantastic that weekend. It was 80 degrees in January. Oh, wow. And I was like, I'm doing this. I'm moving here. So uh, when I started looking for uh, biotech jobs in the area, I couldn't help but notice there were a lot of job postings for the cosmetics industry. And I was like, wait a second. I can get paid to make lipstick? And that was it. <laughs> wow. That, that's what awesome. What about you? I started out in college. Uh, I did not know what I wanted to study. I knew I liked science and I liked animals. So I started off in a biology major. And I got to my senior year, my first senior year, and I'm looking for jobs. This is back when you had to look through the newspaper to find jobs. And it turned out most of the jobs were for chemists. <laughs> And the nice thing about being a bio major is that to be a chemistry major, you take almost all the same classes. And so it was not hard for me to switch. And I took one more year uh, in college, and I switched to be a chemistry major. And then when I got out, I I interviewed at three places. I interviewed at an, uh, Sandoz Agro Inc., where I was going to be a residual chemist. <laughs> Yawn. Um, I interviewed at Coca-Cola, where I could have been a compounder. Oh, that's fun. I'm a former soda addict, so I like really love that. <laughs> I'm a current soda addict, but uh, <laughs> but it was to, a job as a compounder. It wasn't even like a chemistry not job. Not fun, not even related, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's related in that you're mixing the chemicals, but you don't need a chemistry degree for that. And then I also had an interview at the shampoo company, and so I ended up working at Alberto Culver. Um, although I remember coming out of the, the interview saying, it sounds interesting, but I studied all this chemistry, and I'm just going to make shampoo. <laughs> so I kind of got into the industry with sort of a bad attitude. But I worked for a, a little time, a year, and, you know, I, you start making things, and you start making products that you use yourself, and you make products that is relatable to people. You say, oh, I make cosmetics, and, you know, people are like, wow, does this product work or how does that work? And I just thought it was so cool. And it was really cool to walk down the aisles at the local grocery store and see the formula that I had put together. And while I was only going to stay in the cosmetic industry for a year and then go back to school and get a PhD, I ended up just staying forever, I guess. <laughs> so that's yeah. a really cool industry, yeah. Um, what, what do you think? Do you need a BS? Do you need a master's? Well, I think if you're looking for uh, just to get your foot in the door, a BS is certainly fine. I actually run a whole lab and I hire people. I hire chemists. So I always look for a Bachelor of Science, not Bachelor of Arts, um, in a hard science. So it needs to be chemistry, biochemistry, uh, biology. 
And if you have a different degree, but experience behind you, uh, I'm willing to overlook that at well, but you do have to have a hard science. And I certainly think that's enough. I, I do employ people with master's degrees and they're no uh, better, smarter, different than people who don't have master's degrees. I will say that if you want to work at a very large corporation like L'Oreal, they do value uh, your educational pedigree. So an MS might not even be enough. You might need a PhD. Yeah. So it just depends where you want to work. But if you're just looking to get your foot in the door, a BS is fine. Yeah, for sure. And that that's my experience too. And if you're working at a, a smaller company, you often will have to work on a whole slew of different projects. If you work at like a big company, you might be just the shampoo person or just the skin lotion person. And so you can kind or of get Or only pigeonholed. one part of the shampoo. You might not even see the whole thing. Right, yeah. And so you can sometimes get pigeonholed into uh, doing a specific job. So sometimes, especially starting out, getting to work for a contract manufacturer or a medium, a smaller medium-sized company really can get you better training. But the reality is about, about being a cosmetic formulator, you don't learn anything really about formulating in college when you get your degree. Now, there are some undergraduate degrees, uh, recent ones like the University of Toledo, University of Cincinnati, have developed these uh, undergraduate cosmetic programs, but the vast majority of chemists have no formulating experience when they get their degree and get out of college. So some of the things that a cosmetic chemist does. Now I put together this whole list of like, I brainstormed once 75 things that a cosmetic formulator does. I'll put that in the show notes and you can see that. But as, as it goes, I mean, the main things that you do is come up with formulas, make batches and test things. Yeah. Try to, uh, replace ingredients that have been discontinued or are restricted from a regulatory perspective. Uh, you investigate new ingredients. One of my favorite things is that I get to go to Sephora or Ulta and it's called research. <laughs> right. Competitive research. <laughs> Love yeah. That. So, yeah, I mean, every day is different. Every season is different. Every project is different. The cosmetics industry is trends driven. So it's always something new. So if you like doing the same old thing, I would not consider formulating. I would consider working in a QC lab. If you want something new every day, formulation is where it's at. Absolutely. And formulators in R&D and cosmetics, formulators, I think, are kind of looked at as the rock stars. And so, yeah. So unless you want to get into sales where the big money is, <laughs> formulating is the way to go. Yeah. Now, as far as uh, the competition, like within companies and stuff, maybe it's me or t my temperament or just my experience, but I've not found the cosmetic industry to have really terribly competitive people or any kind of backstabbing. Generally, people work together in the industry. And in just like we were at that show uh, in New York with all the cosmetic industry chemists, uh, people are really nice, I found. I don't think uh, it's... I don't think it's a really terrible yeah, industry. It's yeah. a super friendly industry um, out in California. I think we're known extra for our very friendly vibe and you'll see competitors going out to dinner with each other and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Um, there are some companies that I've actually hired people from or that I, I've just heard where it can be really, really competitive and people don't work together and it's a toxic environment and 
those companies do exist. I don't want to say the names um, on the air, but (laughs) they do exist. (laughs) And you'll find out very quickly through a Google search, which what companies those are. And if you're really good at what you do and you don't want to share your knowledge or work closely with other people, those companies are great for you. If you really uh, want to get your foot in the door and collaborate and have explosive growth and build up other people while they build up you, look for a company that believes in that philosophy. So in general, I would say, no, it's not terribly competitive. There are a couple uh, companies that are famous for just not being, you know, very friendly. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. You know what? We got one more question. All right. It comes from Sonia. Yeah, Sonia. Go ahead. Love your podcast. I wish I'd known about it when I first started exploring skincare. My question is about whether it is necessary to wait 15 to 30 minutes after applying vitamin C. I tend to wait for at most five minutes due to being in a rush. Have I been diluting the effect of the vitamin C or is the wait time a myth? Online resources seem to differ on this and I'd really appreciate your input from a scientific perspective. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure I totally understand the question, but it seems like she's asking whether you should wait 15 to 30 minutes to do something else to your skin after you put this on like you apply your vitamin c and then you put on your makeup or something like that exactly that's exactly what she's saying so i've seen it myself especially um actually more specifically on uh k beauty blogs where you're you're layering many products and you want to wait until one product has set in and dried or done whatever it's going to do before applying the next it's just part of the ritual and so I would say you're probably not going to notice any difference, whether you wait five minutes or 15 minutes. I don't think, yeah. Perry, have you ever seen this study been done? No, I mean, I, I don't think this is something that anybody has specifically, at least for published research, has specifically uh, scientifically studied this. And, you know, the funny thing is it would be actually a pretty easy study to do, I think. I just, there's no compelling reason for people to do it. And so any advice that you're getting out there, it's really just based on people's opinions and their guesses, right? And some of those guesses might be more informed than others. I mean, I just, I really doubt that you're going to notice any different, even applying the vitamin C. So, so if it's going to, you know, it's been shown that if your vitamin C levels in your blood plasma are in a normal range, adding additional vitamin C to your skin doesn't really have an effect. Uh, At at least that was the conclusion from a study that I saw that was published in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology. But let's just ignore that for a moment and say, okay, (laughs) vitamin C does something, right? I'm skeptical. I think it does, Perry. I think it does. I'm I'm a user. Okay. (laughs) Better safe than sorry, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah. I I don't I don't have it in the in the shampoo that I use as a facial wash. <laughs> I guess it'll just rinse away. <laughs> but if, let's All just right, assume, okay. Let's we'll assume, assume we get some you, benefit here. Okay, okay. So uh, when you put that product on your s- skin, any available vitamin C, it's gonna start reacting right away, right? The, the chemical reaction is like immediate, and uh, so by the time you put on your makeup, the, the the vitamin C should already have all reacted as much as it's going to. Um, mm-hmm. It it's not like this is a reaction that takes 
15 minutes to complete completely go through. Yeah, it's pretty fast. Right, and when you put makeup on top of it or something like that, it's not like you're stopping the reaction from happening. Yeah, you're not removing it from your skin. But the bottom line is that it's unlikely that you're going to notice any difference whether you wait the 5 minutes or the 15 minutes. And I haven't seen any evidence that would suggest otherwise. And for those of you who use vitamin C, I'm I'm with you. I think it does something. Don't listen to Perry. <laughs> I'd rather put the cream on my face believing than not. I know it's not very scientific of me, but Consumer Val loves vitamin C, but Perry is right. It's going to work right away. So wait a couple minutes, put your next cream on. You're going to be good. Just don't wash it off. Alrighty. Wow. Looks like we've come to the end of this show. Thank you so much for listening uh, today for this show and for all the shows all year. We're coming up on the holiday season and it's listeners like you that make this really worth doing. Uh, one of my favorite things about the meeting we had in New York were all the people that came up and said, hey, I listen to the Beauty Brains. It's great. I love it. It's, it's that felt pretty good, so, huh? Yeah, that was so fun. It's like, really? You listen to the show? Oh, that's great. So if you like the show and you get a chance go over to itunes and leave us a review that's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer also don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts on instagram we're at the beauty brains 2018 on twitter we're at the beauty brains and we have a facebook page and as a quick reminder, the Beauty Brains are on Patreon. If you want to show support to the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. That helps keep the show ad-free and prevents uh, me, at least, from having to go back to corporate America and work for the man, uh, making uh, you know those big bucks at the big beauty brand companies. So if you like what we do and you don't want advertisements like they have on some of those other beauty product podcasts, uh, go to patreon.com slash the beauty brains and subscribe thanks again everyone for listening and remember be brainy about your beauty thanks everybody kittens <laughs>